Hello, friends. Thank you for tuning in to our weekly podcast from First United Methodist Church of Murfreesboro, Tennessee. I'm Drew Shelley, one of the pastors here. It is our hope and prayer that the message you hear today will help you connect deeply with the love of God we know in Jesus. Also, we'd love to connect with you so that we can share life and faith together. If you'd like more information about this church family, or if you want us to contact you, you can visit our website, fumcm.org, or you can check us out on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, at FUMC Borough. If you're looking for a place to belong, we have that place for you in one of our classes or small groups, as a part of one of our mission teams, or in either our modern or traditional worship services, which both meet at 1015 on Sunday mornings. First United Methodist Church is a warm and welcoming community of people committed to the idea of growing disciples of Jesus Christ who know Him, love Him, and serve Him for the transformation of Murfreesboro and the world. We hope this week's message helps you in your own personal journey towards knowing, loving, and serving Jesus in your life. Let's hear our uh, New Testament lesson from 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. And this is our final uh, piece of our series, The Letter, uh, from Thessalonians or 2 Thessalonians. Let's hear the Word of God. Now we commend you, command you, beloved, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, to keep away from believers who are living in idleness, idleness and not according to the tradition that they received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us. We were not idle when we were with you, and we did not eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor, we worked night and day, so that we might not burden any of you. This was not because we do not have that right, but in order to give you an example to imitate, For even when we were with you, we gave you this command, anyone unwilling to work should not eat. For we hear that some of you are living in idleness, mere busybodies, not doing any work. Now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. Brothers and sisters, do not be weary in doing what is right. Do not be weary in well-doing. It's what a lot of our translations say, do not be weary. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Can you say uh, atoktos? Can you say that? That's pretty good. You have to say it with a little bit of disdain, atoktos. Can you say it like that, atoktos? You've got to shake your head a little bit too, atoktos. You're getting there. You're getting there. That's that's how it's meant to be said, atoktos. Uh, is the Greek word that is at the heart of this passage. It, uh, it's not a good word. It's not a good word at all. It gets translated uh, lazy or idle. Lazy or idle. But it's much more than that. Word has come to Paul that there is a faction in the church at Thessalonica, which is atoktos, atoktos. They are idle busybodies. 
not pulling their own weight, and they are just disorderly. They are stirring up all kinds of trouble. Atoktos. It's a scary word. He writes a harsh condemnation of them. He doesn't throw them out of the church, but he does go on. We didn't read it. He goes on to say uh, they should be shunned until they are until their behavior straightens up. <laughs> they should be shunned. Atoktos. Idle, disorderly, busybodies. It reminds me of that 80-20 rule they talk about. Anybody ever heard of the 80-20 rule? In any organization, 20% of the people do what? 80% of the work. Sure, that's how, that's how that works. My grandmother says, in the church, it's the 90-10 rule. It's not the 80-20 rule. 10% of the people do 90% of the work. <clears throat> Nana was always on the front lines at our home church back in Covington. She was always doing her part with a sense of responsibility that would make the Apostle Paul so very proud. To this day, Nana can tell you who was on the front lines with her and who was not on the front lines with her. She knows she has kept a record, and she can pull it up at any time. I remember a long time ago, there was this one woman who just, she always wanted to have something to say and about anything that was happening in the church. She always wanted to stand up and speak her piece about whatever it was going on in the church. And Nana would get so mad. She would just get irate about it. She'd say, she doesn't help with anything. She doesn't do anything in this church. She doesn't even help with Bible school. How can you not even help with Bible school? Why does she think she gets to have something to say about everything? She would just go on and on. Finally, one day, one of our pew mates said, Betty, Betty, you know she is a single mom working two jobs with three kids. She doesn't have time to help with anything. What do you expect her to do? Now that did cause Nana to at least take a breath. She paused, and then she turned to me and whispered, Well, she could at least stir the Kool-Aid at Bible school. <laughs> Could at least stir the Kool-Aid. I talked to us. I talked to us. But that's not exactly what Paul is talking about. In his day, there was a thing called patronage in the society, in the culture. Wealthy folks built and maintained their own status and power in the community by supporting as many poor people as they could. They sort of took them as their charges. It, it was not a sign of their generosity. Let's write that down first. It was not a sign of their generosity. It was a sign of their wealth and power. In other words, aren't you impressed with how many dependents I can keep up? Aren't you impressed that I have 35, 35 families that I keep up? That's a point of pride for these folks. That mindset and that practice it did sometimes bleed over into the church. There weren't, there weren't many wealthy folks in these early Christian churches, but there were a few. And their understanding of the gospel sometimes bolstered this practice of what was called patronage. It bred some very unhealthy patterns of dependence in the church. Uh, even though Judaism and early Christianity clearly rejected it as a way of life, Imagine, to help us get into this mindset, imagine a community of faith like ours, but where we truly do share everything together. 
We eat together almost every day. We are physically together in the same space almost every day. We work to earn money so that we can sustain that community of faith and provide for everyone's needs. One of us gets a financial windfall, we bring it to the Lord's table, and we spread it out and share it as the needs emerge. That's the kind of community that we're talking about. We are sharing together, we're living together, we are leaning on each other together as an expression of God's faithfulness in the world. In that mix, if you continue our imagined scenario, two or three of our wealthier members continue to support and provide for this faction of dependents they brought with them into the community of faith. Only now, these dependents are not helping. They're not pulling their weight. They are agitating. They are stirring up trouble. They are happy to eat the feast laid before them, but they are not happy to do the work necessary to sustain that feast. Some, some have even taken up the argument that, well, Jesus is coming back tomorrow, no need to go to work today. <laughs> That's kind of what we think about when we hear this. We know what this is, don't we? We know exactly what this is. It is entitlement mentality writ large, isn't it? Entitlement mentality we worry about that in our culture today, don't we? We worry about entitlements. We hear about it on the news all the time. We argue about it over coffee and donuts paid for by our Social Security income, don't we? We know exactly what this entitlement mentality is. We understand, we think, what Paul is saying. Though we really don't have this exact dynamic in the modern church today, uh, the modern church looks so very different than Paul's church did. We don't hold all things in common, do we? We don't really do that. We don't have patronage relationships that show up at the Wednesday night supper table, do we? We don't do that. We don't all eat at the table of the person taking care of us. We don't do that. There may be people taking care of us, but we try not to eat at their table in public anyway. But we do still have unhealthy patterns of dependence and expectations which bleed over into the church. Atoktos, atoktos. At the heart of those patterns lie our concept of what the church is or what the church should be. Is it a sanctuary for saints, a storehouse for morality? If we think that it is, why then well, then our behavior builds those concepts, even, even when they are inherently selfish and not the gospel of Jesus Christ. Is the church a hospital for sinners? I think it is a hospital for sinners, so our behavior should build on that concept. But to what end? To what end? At some point, we find healing and wholeness and should be, should be able to become wounded healers, nurses, doctors, helpers who are helping others in this hospital. We can't just lay in the bed our whole lives, can we? We can't just have as our purpose uh, being the broken person that the healthier folks take care of. We can't keep doing that forever. That doesn't work very well. That falls apart. We can't just go to church to get fed 
and to have our souls nourished with good music and spiritual food. If we do that, we get spiritual gout, don't we? It looks remarkably like a toctose, a toctose. That's what that is. Still, still another image. Is the church the home, the headquarters of God's mission? Why? If it is, then what is our purpose? What is our work? Is it not to pray, to worship, to hear the gospel, and to live it as best as we can every single day, our best effort to further God's mission in the world, if that's what the church is? If that is our concept, then the church is a place requiring so much work for each other. There is care for the wounded to be offered, equipping for the mission. There is worship that sustains us. There is prayer that feeds our discernment so that we are in lockstep with the spirit of the living God in whom we live and move and have our being, practically speaking, when we consider the church to be the home, the headquarters of God's mission, why, it takes an army of people, an army of people inside the walls, hard at work, so that another army of people can be hard at work outside the walls, in our schools, in our homes, in our workplaces, in the marketplace, bearing witness to the love of God that we know in Jesus. We are missionaries, missionaries bringing home to people who don't yet know they are looking for it. We depend upon each other in this understanding of church and what it means to be the church. This entitlement mentality does not fit, does it? Nana is right. We can all at least stir the Kool-Aid at Bible school. We can all stir the Kool-Aid. But we have to be awfully careful throwing that entitlement word around, don't we? We start throwing that entitlement word around and we might get some on us from time to time. Paul makes a rambly connection about people not having to work. Paul chooses to work even though he doesn't have to because working for the kingdom is healthy and right and good. It is the right thing to do, to work and provide for the kingdom. The idle busybodies causing all this disruption at Thessalonica, they are not. They are not the poor single mothers working two jobs, getting a little help from their church family, and just trying to speak their peace. That's not it. That's not it at all. The autochtones in Thessalonica, it seems, are those folks who no longer have to work. Those folks who just throw their money into the church coffers and expect the poor people to do all their work for them because they have done their part. They have paid for the care of the poor people. Now that's what's happening at Thessalonica. That's a little different. It makes us wonder, you see, who here is really the entitled one? Who is really entitled my Nana is 89. She'll be 90 on December the 1st. She's not really in good health, but her mind is just as sharp as a tack. And she and, I, she and I share a lot of things in common. We are both the oldest child in our families of origin. We both have this gap in our front teeth right here. That's how you can tell we're related. And uh, we both struggle about some things about the church, and we have good talks about them. So a couple of years ago, I asked her, 
if she had signed up to help with Vacation Bible School. And she said, no, honey, no, I have not. I have done my time. I have done my part. I have helped with Bible school for 50 years, 50, five, zero years. That's longer than you have been alive. Don't ask me if I have signed up to help with Vacation Bible School. Those young people, they're the ones who need to be doing their part. They need to be running that thing. When I was running that thing, they were there, little children running around. They need to step up and help. And I said, Nana, you are right. You're right. But you know what? They have already signed up to help. And so have their grandchildren that you also had in vacation Bible school. I was asking about you. I was just asking about you. We had a long talk about Atoktos. Atoktos. After we got through, Nana winked at me, and she said, Well, I guess I can still stir the Kool-Aid. <laughs> there is but one kind of entitlement acceptable in the church of Jesus Christ, we are all beautifully entitled to roll up our sleeves and work together for the good of each other, for the good of God's mission, and for the hope of the world, all in response to the gift God has given us in Jesus. What emerges, you see, in all that work is a community of people who are becoming healthy whole and saved for the good work of loving the world back to life one heart at a time. Now that's something that Nana and I will sign up for every single time. Those who have ears to hear, let them hear. Thanks be to God. Amen.